0: I am going to be preaching topical sermons, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, that's the idea, but we are going to be basing them on specific texts of Scripture, albeit ones that I am gathering together. And so to make it a little bit easier for you, uh, if you would like, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Proverbs 16, or uh, I have, uh, I've had printed out in our bulletins the primary scriptures that we're going to be using for today's study. Uh, This also is an opportunity to take these home uh, and perhaps hide God's Word in your heart that you would put uh, some of these proverbs and God's wisdom uh, for us uh, before your eyes and before your life as we think about them. But uh, we're going to begin today. I'm going to read all of the proverbs on our bulletin insert as our text, uh, and then we will study those together and study together uh, the issue of God's wisdom uh, for future planning. Now, I Uh, Thought about um, making apology, but I I would not like to make apology for today's topic. Um, Let's be honest; we have a pretty big decision before us as a church, and we can either uh, bury our heads and to mix metaphors, uh, zoological metaphors, we can either bury our heads in the sand uh, and ignore the elephant in the room, uh, or. Uh, we could meet it head on and we could see what God's word has for us when we think about how do we decide the future. So this is not going to be a sermon about how you should vote for the building or against the building, but this will in part, and uh, a lot of other areas of your life, this will in part be a sermon to help us think about how should we decide how we should vote about the building, and about a whole other host of areas in our life. So now, uh, we're going to read together these uh, Proverbs that we have, but before we do, please join me in prayer. O Lord, our God, You are the one who has promised wisdom to those who ask of You, and we come needing wisdom. And so we pray that what we have not, You would give to us. Uh, What we lack, You would supply, and what we are not, You would make us. O Lord, would You work Your perfect will in us, that we would be your people walking with you in wisdom and uprightness uh, and seeing the glory of your Son, uh, who is the treasury of all wisdom and knowledge. And so help us to draw from Him and supply our every need. Through Christ we pray in His name. Amen. Well, now hear God's Word as we find it in Proverbs 16, 19, 24, and 27. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Listen to advice. And accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Thus far God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we read it and hear it today. Well, if you were around to watch uh, any daytime television in the late 90s, you will probably remember uh, the Psychic Friends Network. I think 1997 was the last summer that I didn't have a job. And so I remember vividly uh, groups like the Psychic Friends Network or Miss Chloe uh, or a host of others promising that you could call their hotline and for about $3.99 per minute after the first five minutes, which were free, they told you, for $3.99 a minute, you could be connected to your own personal consultant, your own personal clairvoyant who would give you insight into what your future held for you and help you to navigate. Uh, the decisions that you needed to make and the things that you needed to do. Well, uh, in 1998, uh, their business nosedived, and the Psychic Friends Network filed for bankruptcy. One wonders if they didn't see it coming. But uh, in, thank you, in 2012, in 2012, new owners tried to restart that business, and so they bought the rights to the name. Uh, And they promised, as part of their investor information package, uh, the network promised to, quote, leverage an iconic brand name using new technologies and social media to reestablish Psychic Friends Network as the industry leader for daily horoscopes and psychic advice. And their website was a little bolder. It said, we all want to know what our future holds. For centuries, great leaders have sought and found the vital psychic edge, and now So can you. How exciting. To be able to know what your future held. Well, the uh, company's investor package sent out to all those that they hoped to to get support from uh, projected that within the first three years, they would have an estimated $64 million in revenue. But as things like this always happen, there was a lawyer somewhere along the line who had to get a hold of the official filing, and if you were to look at their investor package right there on the very first page, you would find this very important disclosure. This release contains forward-looking statements which involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that may cause the company's actual results or outcomes to be materially different than those anticipated and discussed herein. Undue reliance should not be placed on the forward-looking statements because Psychic Friends Network can give no assurance that they will prove to be correct. (laughs) And so it came about in a Bloomsburg article that even the Psychic Friends Network can't predict their future. It seems that they didn't get a whole lot of anything right about the only thing that they really got right was the fact that a fool and his money are soon parted. And they also got right the fact that we all wish we knew what our future held. Could you imagine if it were true, if for $3.99 a minute or five ninety nine dollars a minute, if it were true, you would pay an exorbitant amount of money to call and have someone tell you exactly what your life was going to look like and how your decisions would pan out a year from now, five years from now. All those big, important, life-changing decisions. Should I marry or should I stay single? And if I marry, who should I marry? Should I take this job? Should I major in that in college? Should the church purchase the Stowe Chapel facility? All those big, important things that we want to know, and even those little minute details of your daily life. If I answer this email this way, are they going to take it wrong? Are they going to be offended? Am I going to lose the relationship? And all those unforeseen forks that can take your life in directions that you never anticipated, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could know what the future held for you? It's part of the human story, part of our nature that we live not only in the moment that we are in, but also in the shadow of what the future might hold. We dream about the future. We think about the future. We plan for the future. We worry about the future. That is, in a sense, part of how the Lord has made us. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us that God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That's what we want. Not just next week, not just next year. We want the big picture. We want to know about eternity, but we're stuck in the now. So how are we to decide these things that are coming? How do we choose? How do we plan for the unknown future before all of us? Well, folks, the psychic friends can't help you. Daily horoscopes and prophetic prognostications are of no use, and your fortune cookie can't help you, and in fact... Even God's Word does not give you a play-by-play of what you ought to expect in your family, and in your health, and in your job, and all of your different relationships. And yet the future, no matter what it holds, is not a frightening thing for the believer. For the one who knows the Lord who walks with them, because we have God's wisdom, we have God's Spirit given to us. As a gift of the crucified and resurrected Savior, He gives His Spirit, as we proclaim today, to lead us into all truth. We don't have to be afraid of what the future holds. In fact, this is exactly what Proverbs 31 tells us about the wise woman. Proverbs 31, verse 25, Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. What a beautiful picture. To think about the unknown before you and to smile, to know that it's not something to be feared, and you can smile at the future too. If you are willing to heed God's wisdom, you can approach the future equipped for what's coming, even if you can't see it. Now, uh, thinking wisely about the future, and we've got some wisdom here for us from the Proverbs, but I think it begins uh, with this section in chapter 16 that we started with. Thinking wisely about the future begins when we acknowledge that the future belongs to the Lord, if we want to prepare ourselves for the future, we first have to understand whose the future is. Where has it come from? Who is the one who is lining it out? Who is the one who is directing it, if there is someone directing it? Herman Bovink is a, a Dutch theologian with a name that's really exciting to say out loud, but he also, he also wrote a theology of human morality, Christian ethics, in three big, fat, thick volumes. And here's how he began his study of all of Christian ethics. He says, there is a big difference between saying that human beings are the image and offspring of the chimpanzee and saying they are the image and the offspring of God. Between saying that human beings are from below and saying that they are from above, and that governs the entire question of ethics. Well, as with ethics, so with the future. It makes all the difference in the world if the future is some random, disconnected string of events and circumstances, or if it is something that is in the hands of the Lord, who is shaping it, and who owns it, and is directing it. And so if we want to prepare for the future, we need to know the God who owns the future, and this is where Proverbs excels. There is doctrine in the Proverbs, in amongst the the quick snippets and the little pieces that we find. And you can turn lots of places in the Scriptures to find the doctrine of God's providence, His ordering and sustaining of all things. You can find theological statements, uh, uh, didactical statements that you can can teach your children with, that you can sit under, and these these wonderful statements that you can hear. Say in in Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases everything He pleases. His will is, is not confounded a wonderful statement. You could read of Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. You could learn how He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And you could read of those statements, good things close to our hearts and especially close to our uh, our Presbyterianism, or you could turn to the Proverbs and you could see it in a picture. Not just a the theological doctrine laid out, but You could walk with the proverb, uh, with with the sages, with the wisdom teachers. You could see the lot falling into the lap. And know that it's every decision. Yes or no, fight or flight, buy or sell, good or bad. It's every decision is from the Lord. That's what it's telling us in a picture. That the Lord is in control of the future. He's the one who owns it. You can turn with the Proverbs and you can see in your mind's eye a man, a woman, setting out on a long journey and they have an idea of where they're going. They might have an idea of the things that they'll meet on the way and the proverb tells us that at every step, at every step along the way, the Lord is ordering and establishing these things. You see the, the Proverbs are teaching us that the Lord owns the future. And these are pictures that you would see uh, all over in, uh, in the Proverbs. In, in ancient Israel, you would see this all over the place, this idea especially of uh, of casting lots. The Israelites did this to decide almost everything. It was like flipping a coin. And nobody really knows uh, precisely what it was like. Maybe it was a stone that was uh, smooth, and it was painted one color on one side and another color on another side, and it was, it was tossed, and depending on which way it landed, it was, it was yes or no. And it became a proverb. No matter uh, what situation you were facing, it was something that you would say to remind one another of the reality of the, the situation. You're confounded. You, you have just gotten a promotion, and yet your friend uh, has just been fired, and, and you're thinking together, trying to figure out how have these things happened. Why, why does one happen one way and the other happen the other way? And maybe your friend says, you know, the lot's cast into the lap. It's from the Lord. He owns the future. And rain falls on this farmer's wheat, and that farmer uh, has his crops die because of, uh, of lack of water. And, well, a lot is cast into the lap. These, these things are from the Lord. Job loses every earthly possession, his children and his livestock, uh, everything he has in his entire life in one single day. And, and he sits down, and he mourns, and he worships, and he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, the lot is cast into the lap. And yet it's every decision is from the Lord. That is God's wisdom for the future. It's the worldview that trusts that even behind things that seem so insignificant as the, the flipping of a stone to decide yes or no. Yet the Lord is speaking to his people. Now, it's interesting as we approach some of our own decisions that the last time Uh, The lot was used among God's people is in Acts chapter 1, directly before the giving of the Holy Spirit. And after that, uh, in, say, Acts chapter 6, when the church needs to decide an important matter, it's left to the body. It's left to those to choose men of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. And there's a shift away. Although the Lord did use these things, it's important just as we frame our discussions later. And how do we decide? Well, no longer by lots. And yet we can still look and say, even these things that are seemingly insignificant are from the Lord. It's the doctrine that reminds us, Proverbs 21, verse 30, that no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Why? Because our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Because the future belongs to Him. It doesn't belong to chance. It doesn't belong to you. The future belongs to the Lord. And so wisdom for future planning begins when we understand God's providence. And it grows as we trust his purpose. Now, here's the wonderful thing about recognizing that the Lord is in control of the future. It forces us to recognize that the future is ordered according to his personal goodness because the future is ordered according to his personal purpose. When we talk about sovereignty, we're not talking about fatalism. We're not talking about an unguided series of events, connected though they may be. We're talking about a personal entity, a God, who desires and executes His will. He has a purpose. This is what we find in Proverbs 19.21 on your sheet before you. Many are the plans in the mind of the man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. The Lord is providential and he is purposeful in the way that he orders the future. If you have uh, young children, no matter what your family is, you will spend a lot of time teaching your children about the difference between accidents and purpose. Oh, did you bump into your sister on accident or did you push her down on purpose? That is it was there a conscious volitional decision Uh, to execute your will in this situation? Were you going after the thing that you wanted? Is there a personal drive behind this? And that is the question before us. That's what we're talking about when we talk about purpose. In the New City Catechism, question two asks, what is God? And you know, perhaps, the Westminster answer. This is just slightly different. The answer is, what is God? Well, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in His power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through Him and by His will. Now, this is really helpful. That last statement there is a good definition of providence. Nothing happens except through Him and by His will. But the middle helps us to connect God's providence with His purpose because it connects His purpose with His person. Who is He? Who is this God who's ordering the future? Who is the one who lays it all out before Him, though we see neither the beginning nor the end? Well, He's infinitely good. He's perfectly just. He's he's wonderfully, unchangeably merciful. God's purpose is to reveal His glory, we find in Scripture. God's purpose is to redeem a people for Himself. God's purpose is to protect and provide for His church and to see through it that whether... Through hardships or comfort, whether affliction or abundance, his children are conformed to the pattern of his son. That is God's purpose. According to the counsel of his own free will, according to his goodness and his person, the grand design of God is the mystery, Paul says, Ephesians 1, the mystery of God's will, his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This is the purpose that will stand. Whether your plans work out the way that you expected or not, this is the direction the future is headed because the Lord owns it, and He is purposely moving it in that direction. And this is a word that we need to hear. In fact, this is a word that the unbelieving world needs to hear because for 2,000 years and more, they have been trying to silence the gospel and snuff out God's church. And yet God's purpose will stand. Christ has established His church, and He tells us not even the gates of hell, not even death and destruction itself can stand against it, far less those enemies who plot and scheme against the Lord and against His anointed. God's purpose will stand, no matter what man may plan, no matter what he may scheme. Believers need to hear this too. Because we waste so much time spinning our wheels and wondering, well, am I going in the right direction here? Have I chosen, chosen the best of, of these two options? Am I moving in the right direction or on the right path? And we waste anxiety and sleeplessness. We waste heartburn over the question of whether we've made right decisions and what will happen if everything goes pear-shaped. But the wisdom of God says, slow down and take a breath. There's a Lord who's ordering all these things according to His purpose for His church. And so even when things look like they have fallen apart, The scriptures remind us, God's wisdom reminds us that he's the one who knows and has laid out every single broken piece and he's the one who is molding them back together into something more beautiful than we could imagine. And this is where we begin. That the Lord owns the future and he moves it according to his purpose. And if you don't believe it, look to the cross. This is the prayer that the saints had, the apostles had in Acts chapter 4. They had just been persecuted and then released and then Uh, Two of them gathered together with the others, and they pray, truly, praying to the Lord, truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They gathered together. They schemed. They plotted against the Lord and against His anointed And yet many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. This is where we have to begin planning for the future. We have to begin with God's purpose and his providence. We have to begin by trusting that the future belongs to the Lord. But it may seem as though we're taking a strange tack to talk about future planning. We are about halfway done. So far, all I've told you is that the Lord has it locked down. He's got it figured out, even if you don't. The Lord is in control. The Lord is sovereign. He's working out uh, His purposes. And at this point, some people are tempted to throw up their hands and say, well, what's the point then? (laughs) Who cares? I could marry or not marry. I I could... I could work or not work. I could trust the Lord and lay in bed and wait for providence to make me holy and happy and ready for heaven. And I could just sit back and watch it all happen. And if the Lord is going to do what He pleases, why should we do anything at all? Why should we trouble ourselves with all of this? Let's just, uh, let's just wait until it all comes upon us. Well, obviously, when we read the Scriptures, we are never encouraged to let go and let God, to just simply wait for providence to wash over us. Rather, the idea that God is in control is always an impetus, an encouragement to further industry, to working with Him, to walking with the Lord where He calls us. God's providence is never an excuse for idleness. And you know this if you're a Christian. What does it mean to call upon the Lord in faith? Where did your your entire life of faith begin? It begins by calling out to the Lord. Will you save me? Will you shepherd me? Will you guide me to yourself and and keep me from sin? Will you lead me in the paths of righteousness? Will you be the one who does what I can't? Will your purposes please stand for me? And when you approach him that way, the Lord responds, yes, of course. All those who turn to me, I will in no wise cast out. And then he turns to us with a command. But if you want me to lead you, if you want me to shepherd you, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. Yes, I'll do what I've said I will do. My purpose will stand. I will in no wise cast you out. But it becomes a call to further obedience. So it is in the Proverbs. God's purpose is going to stand, His promises will be proven true, and so, not in spite of, but and so, He commands His people to be discerning, to be driven on the path that He's establishing. Take a look at Proverbs 24, verses 3 through 4. It tells us, by wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled, and with all precious and pleasant riches. Well, that's literally true metaphorically true, a house. Imagine, imagine one of those big estates. Maybe you go down uh, to Newport, Rhode Island, and you tour one of these grand places, and, and every room is better than the previous right every piece of furniture is some hidden gem it's just a masterpiece the canvases on the walls are all framed in gold filigree the floors and the hand carved marble mantelpieces are the best quality everything is wonderful how did it get that way well, through wisdom and through hard work that house wasn't created ex nihilo it didn't just poof appear that house represents the cumulative wisdom and and an industry of many uh, different craftspeople who work together to, to create perfect pieces and the, and the household manager arranges them in just the right way so that they're more pleasing than the next. Every time you see another detail that you didn't notice before, it's hard work. And, and it was built, says the scripture. It was established. It was filled with good things. There was industry and discernment there. And if that is true of a house, how much more is that true of your own life? this actually is a metaphorical statement for us here in the in the proverbs it's meant to remind us of greater things what if this house is your family life there's a call to consider the, the providence of god how you can establish a family that's stable that's inviting how the relationships in your home can be beautiful and attractive to outsiders so that they would want to be in and among your family and and partake of your hospitality. It's a call to consider the wisdom and the hard work that goes into making your marriage a parable of the gospel. What if this house is your Christian walk? You want to follow the Lord in a way that showcases the treasure of the gospel at work in you. Actually, I think Christ had this this proverb in mind in Matthew chapter 13. He says that every... uh, every, uh, House owner, he uses the term house manager in the kingdom, is, is like a wise house manager that, that stores up treasures and brings them out one after another. He's talking about our spiritual lives. You, you want to live in a way that, that showcases the gospel at work. You want to you take the job. You want to choose the path that leaves you free to focus on primary things. You want to make sure that you don't replace the worship of God with the idols of success and achievement. So how do you do it? Well, it takes hard work and wisdom and discernment. Suppose this house is Redeemer Church. And we're all gathered together wondering how we can best position our congregation to be faithful. We want to carry out the, the commission the Lord has given to us, and maybe you've got your idea and you've got yours about how that works best. But this is where we're trending, isn't it? We, we need to think hard. We need to work with the Lord and as He enables us, as He providentially directs our church to, to take the path that He's led before us. We want to love the Lord and His Word. We want to make sure that we're not afraid to make known in a hostile world around us the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Wisdom looks like house building, says the proverb. It looks like war waging. It looks like a winding path that, that of hard decisions as Christ shepherds us through the world, and it's only when you understand the truth of providence that you are prepared to make choices about your future. Because it is only providence that gives us the perspective that we need. This is what Sinclair Ferguson says. He suggests that this is what is wrong with all the guidance that comes from the spirit of our age. The worldly perspective that's infatuated with immediate short-term results. He says, it cannot see life in the long term because it looks at life without the perspective of eternal realities. See, God's purpose gives us the perspective that we need begin to look at those decisions that we have to make. It teaches us the difference between the wise and the foolish builder. It teaches us the difference between building something that will last and something that only looks substantial from the outside but has no real weight to it. And when the storms fall and when the waters rise, it's collapsed. Wisdom helps us here, and the the perspective of providence helps us. And here's where we get into some of the practical aspects of planning for the future. What do we do with all this eternal perspective? How can how a can knowledge of God's providence help us to make the right choices rather than the wrong ones? Let me suggest two principles for us today. First, that wise planning is committed to God's purpose. The theme verse here is Proverbs 16, verse 3. It says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. That's a wonderful verse. It's wonderful at least uh, because it has a promise attached to it, and we love those passages that have promises attached to it. In fact, we love them so much that we tend to twist them out of context to make them promise whatever we want them to promise. Commit your ways to the Lord, and your works will be established. This is This is like a blank check, isn't it? Whatever I want to do, whatever is easiest, perhaps, I'll just... I'll pray about that, and I'll commit it to the Lord, and and here's, here's a promise that all of my greatest desires will be achieved. Actually, Jesus makes a similar promise in the New Testament about our prayer life, doesn't he? John chapter 14, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then he repeats, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And then he repeats three more times in that same section. Whatever you ask, in the name of Jesus, the Father will do. What a promise. And the brand new Christian says, wow, do you mean I can ask for anything and so long as I baptize my prayer with that phrase at the end? In your name, amen. As long as I add that to the end, does that mean that I get everything? Well, of course we're not naive enough to think that because we've all been Christians for more than like five seconds and we've, we've grown a little bit and we, in prayer and we understand that the real challenge with this promise that Jesus gives in the New Testament is wrestling with our darkened hearts to actually begin to ask things according to God's will and in His name. It begins in that struggle where we have to put to death that which is earthly in us And ask for the things that the Lord says, this is honorable, this is true, this is according to my character, this is what I have revealed, this is what you need. And so if you've wrestled with Jesus' promise, you know there's a world of difference between praying, Lord, I want to be married like yesterday, between that and saying, Lord, I pray that you would make me pure and holy as I wait for your timing." There is a world of difference between saying, God, give me a high-paying job so I can give lots of money to missions. Isn't that a good thing, right? There's a world of difference between praying that and saying, Oh, Lord, make me sacrificially generous with whatever you choose to give me. They're actually both trending in the same direction, believe it or not. But it's in learning to read God's Word and hear His character in His Word and to pray according to his character, according to his word, according to his name. And so it is with planning for the future. The challenge, actually, is in viewing our choices through the grid of God's character. What has he revealed? What does the Lord teach about what is worthy of pursuit? Which choices will maximize your opportunities? to do eternal good for your soul and for the souls of those people around you. And if that's where you begin, actually most of your choices become pretty easy. Should I remain single or should I marry this unbeliever who's showing some interest in me? That's a pretty easy decision if you're committing your way to the Lord the way you ought to be. Should I take this great job in this other city that is far flung from any gospel preaching church or should I stay in the job that drives me crazy close to the church where I am fed? That's an easy decision if you're committing your way to the Lord. Do I choose this college or that college? Do I take this job or that one? So long as in both situations you can legitimately pursue godliness with a good heart, pick one and get on with your life. And trust the Lord to work it all out. It becomes very simple. I don't mean to downplay, but I know that that decisions are hard. And which home will you purchase? Will you purchase at all? Will you go here? Will you do that? There are difficult decisions, but when you begin realizing that the Lord is working out His purposes, and what we are called to do is to follow His character and and to commit our ways to Him, and then trust Him, then, then really many of them become quite simple. So here's the first principle for wise planning. Wise planning is committed to God's purposes and not just to those things that you think you want at first blush. And here's the second one. Wise planning is open to correction. You know how it goes. You have seen or you have heard that believer who is married and somehow convinces themselves that the Lord is opening a door for a relationship with someone who is not their spouse. They begin to meet more often. They begin to talk anytime they get the chance. They they haven't committed adultery yet. They haven't broken any vows yet, but the infatuation is there. And it gets to a certain point where it doesn't matter what anybody else tells them. You can speak to them all day long until you're blue in the face uh, talking about uh, vows before the Lord and the covenantal nature of marriage and the holiness of the marriage bond, and God's God's, uh, idea for marriage in the first place. And you can talk to them over and over again, and it doesn't matter because they have begun to convince themselves, you know, actually, it's probably the more godly thing to leave my spouse and to join with that other person. And we have a spiritual connection that I've never had with my spouse. I bet our gifts are compatible and we could go to this other city and we could join a church where we could be the leaders of the youth group. I bet that we could pray with one another in ways that I can't pray with my wife. It's actually maybe a more godly thing to do this this thing that I really want. And if you think that sort of thing doesn't happen, you haven't been around the church long enough. The reality is that in the name of pursuing what we want for ourselves, we can justify the so-called virtues of practically any action. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, and who can know it? We need Proverbs nineteen twenty. Listen to advice and accept instruction. The word actually there is discipline, correction. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom for the future, or perhaps even better, Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. What does a fool look like? A fool looks like a person with their fingers in their ears, blocking out sound advice as they run headlong into destruction. A fool is the person that says, I want this so badly, I really don't care what anybody has to say about it. There are people that are worth listening to, and there are people that are not worth listening to, and part of that is wisdom as well. But beware if you begin any decision by saying, there is no one in my life, there is no one in my Christian circles, there is no pastor, there is no parent, there is no advisor who can change my mind about this because I know what is right for me. The scripture says you're a fool if you approach it that way. If you are right in your own eyes. And the the Proverbs show us again and again the, the folly of refusing good advice for the sake of making bad choices. C.J. Mahaney puts it this way. He says, without others' help to see myself clearly, I will listen to my own arguments, I will believe my own lies, I will buy into my own delusions. So here's the principle. It might be that you're dealing with something as extreme as the example that I've already given you, and nobody knows about it yet. Maybe you're thinking through something like that. It may be as simple as what do you do with your weekend plans? Who do you hang out with? What are the decisions that are right in front of you? Maybe for the rest of your Lord's Day, what will you do with your Lord's Day? It might be something profound like, what do we think about this building in Stowe? But whatever the choice before you, make your plans with a willingness to be persuaded by the advice of others. And very clearly, I want to say this to people on both sides of the debate before us as a church. I don't care if you think that purchasing the Stowe Chapel is the greatest idea since the invention of the church. I don't care if you think it is the most terrible idea that has ever come before this body in our 26-year history. I don't care if you are somewhere in the middle, still impressionable. Wherever you are, make up your mind now not to be so foolish as to refuse to hear the wisdom of people who disagree with you. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. May the Lord give us wisdom for the future. Wisdom to plan with his purpose in mind and to commit our ways to him and to be open to correction. And may the Lord be glorified by the wisdom that he gives his people. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank you for the promise that you work in your people, and you speak through your people. We confess that not only as a church body thinking about this, let's not be so naive, O Lord, to, to think that this is the only issue on our hearts today. There are others wrestling with decisions, and so we pray for them. We pray for ourselves. By your Holy Spirit, you would make us open to correction. You would help us to see your provident care of all of us O Lord, give us discernment to commit our way to you, not to the things that we think would be best for us, but to look with an eternal perspective on the kingdom that you are building and that no one can thwart because it is your good purpose to prosper your gospel. O help us, O Lord, to align our lives with what you have for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.